Teach me about the Great Lakes. Teach me about the Great Lakes. Welcome back to Teach Me About the Great Lakes, a twice-monthly podcast, basically, in which I, a Great Lakes novice, ask people who are smarter and harder working than I am to teach me all about the Great Lakes. My name is Stuart Carlton, and I know a lot about exactly how much I hate in vivo especially two weeks before a conference in which I'm trying to use in vivo to finish gathering data that I will present at that conference, hopefully. But I don't know a lot about the Great Lakes. And that's the point of this year's podcast. I'm joined today by Carolyn Foley, Illinois Indiana Sea Grants Research Coordinator. Carolyn, what's up? Um, Not much. It is spring. It is <laughs> shamefully cold, but yeah. we'll get warmer. Yeah, no, it's one of those springs where you're still wearing your winter clothes. You're like, hmm, okay, spring it is. Uh, I agree. But speaking of being cold, actually, we got a little bit of feedback. So we got some feedback to teach me about the Great Lakes at gmail.com. Um, and this is from, if I can find it, there it is. The great Dusty. And he says, hello from the other side of the Wabash. Um, and yet we asked for stories. We did about lake ice. And so he has a fond memory of ice racing a few years ago. I did not know this was a thing. He thinks it was on Lake on Turk Lake in Greenville, Michigan, not Greenville, South Carolina. If you ice race on that lake, you are hosed. Um, and there's a car club local to Grand Rapids called the Furrin Group that hosted the event. So that's F-U-R-R-I-N, the Furrin Group, not the Furry Group. That's a different car club in Grand Rapids. Oh, it is not. Okay, Furrin Group. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, look at this. Uh, so Furrin is apparently, I, I, you know, I've never been to Grand Rapids. I'm going for the first time soon. More on that in a minute. Um, but apparently that comes from Fern, you know, like Fern cars. So you take out your Fern cars and he has a 1985 Saab 900, which is nine times better than the Saab 100. And I had a blast. They plowed a path in the ice and, uh, and set up what an autocross course. And he says, it was really interesting to relearn to drive my car on the ice. And for those who haven't driven on a frozen lake, there's more grip than you would expect, especially if you're using snow and, snow and winter tires. So the Great Dusty is encouraging you to find ice and drive on it as long as the ice is thick enough, I suppose. And then he attached a, a, a photo, which we will put... Um, We'll put in the show notes. Maybe this is time to open a, a show Instagram account. I don't know, but we'll put a link to it in the show notes. And uh, look at the snow, the photo of this 1985. So that is older than uh, not me. I don't know, not you, but many of the co-hosts on Teach Me About the Great Lakes. Um, and uh, it's a fun car or a fun photo of the car way out there. And he also recommends uh, the snow drift, a rally race. Uh, we'll link to that too, every January. And this is, Dusty says it is 100% the best event for spectating that he's ever been to. So. Of course, he lives in West Lafayette, so he's probably been to a lot of Purdue things, which means, you know, there are better No, there's – no, I I totally believe that in Gaylord, Michigan, there would be a really, really, really cool thing. So um, thank you, Great Dusty, for sharing that with us because it's great. So have you ice raced? Have you driven your car on the ice, Carolyn? Uh, not on the ice, but um, I have been known to do some fun donuts. You have been known to do some time. fun donuts. <laughs> Yes. Better that. Um. <laughs> nope. Were they powder donuts? Anyway. Um. <laughs> oh, you're nuts. All right. So, yeah. So, thanks for the feedback. That was really cool. If anybody else wants to give us feedback in the future. Yeah, give us your Lake Eye stories. Do it at uh, teachingaboutthegreatlakes at gmail.com. Or since we're heading into spring, if you want to give us your fun, cold springs on the Great Lakes stories and, yeah. and you're like, oh, I'm wearing shorts one day and then winter coat the next. Yeah, yeah. Tell us what, what flavor tea you're having to celebrate uh, the onset of spring. Uh, that's great. Okay, a couple bits of announcements. Big announcement here. So um, if if we don't screw this up too badly. 
Oh, were you waving? <laughs> was that the announcement wave? No, that was the drum roll. Oh, the drum roll. And then I was making my own drum roll, not your fancy one. And then I started laughing because you said, if we don't screw this up too badly, and I feel like there's a 99.9% chance that we will screw it up somehow. But big announcement, go. Sounds to me like we already screwed it up. Um, <laughs> this should be out on May 2nd. So if you're listening to this on May 2nd or sometime before May 16th, we are having at the Joint Aquatic Sciences Meeting, JASM, in uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan, we're going to have a meetup. Uh, an informal teach me about the Great Lakes meetup. That'll be at the Grand Rapids Brewing Company about 8 p.m. See, Purdue is having an Illinois Indiana Secret. We're having a reception. You may or may not be invited. If you are, you know. But after that reception, we're just going to hang out at the brewery for a while at the Grand Rapids Brewing Company. And we'll put a link to where that is in the show notes. About 8 p.m. on Monday, May 16th as part of the part of the JASM. So come say hey. We'll probably, hopefully, have stickers there too if you want a sticker. And maybe we will try to, uh, we're trying to get together a last minute. This just occurred to me yesterday in the bathroom while I was washing my hands. I was washing my hands in the bathroom <laughs> um, when this occurred to me. I, uh, uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, we are trying to pull off, and, and the ch- odds of this getting screwed up are extremely high, about 98%. But we're trying to pull off a Teach Me About the Great Lakes live at 9 o'clock that night at the Grand Rapids Brewing Company. I have no idea if that's going to happen or not. Stay tuned to social media and maybe iicgrant.org, because if we do it, we'll throw out a newsroom article at the last second. So it probably won't happen, but it could happen. And uh, so stay tuned for that. But I'll let I'll pre-announce it now in case you're at JASM. And um, if it doesn't happen, then, well, let's be honest, it was probably my fault. <laughs> Or, yeah. So, um, <laughs> speaking about the JASM conference, that's a huge, 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 huge conference. There's going to be tons and tons of people there. Um, but one of the topics that I'm sure there will be many talks about are benthos. That's right. Benthos, lots of uh, people getting deep on benthos. And so we thought we would talk about it, but are we going to bring on anybody who has any old job to talk about that, Carolyn? Or are we going to bring on someone who is, I don't know, a professional researcher? We're going to bring on like one of the best people and most knowledgeable people about this particular topic for the Great Lakes that I have met. There we go. And I agree. Um, and no way to introduce the guest than by embarrassing ourselves. So let's go ahead and do that. Researcher feature. A feature in which a researcher going to teach us about the Great Lakes. Our guest today is Dr. Ashley Elgin. She's a research ecologist at the NOAA Great Lakes Environmental Research Lab, and she's in Muskegon, beautiful research area on the lake there. Ashley, how are you today? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm, I'm doing great, too. We're, we're planning to dig deep today, dig deep, I think. And the reason we want to dig deep is because you study the benthos and benthic ecology. And benthos is one of the coolest words in our lexicon, I think. But what, what is the benthos exactly? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad we're digging deep because I, I do work deep. I work in the, the deep bottom areas of the Great Lakes. Uh, benthos is what we affectionately call you know benthic organisms that live on the bottom. Uh, they are very important because they have several key jobs in aquatic systems. One is they break down material. They help promote decomposition. They are a part of nutrient cycling. And they themselves, they eat each other, and they're really good food for other organisms like fish and birds. 
So it is just your, I was actually just talking about this. So we're working on a project um, with the AOCs, Areas of Concern, a, mm-hmm. a postdoc in IR, and she's doing brilliant work and I'm just along for the ride, which is great. But I was reading about, and so I always thought the Mentos was the whole deal, including like the dirt and everything, but it's just the organisms, right? Um, yes. I did not realize that. That was a new thing I learned when I learned about the different uh, BUIs or beneficial use of impairments. Okay. So is, so is this literally, I guess, literally the base of the food web, right? Down at the bottom yeah. there, is that? Yeah, in a spatial sense, yes. Um, but it is a big component, an important component of the lower food web. But I will mention there are also benthic dwelling fish such as round goby, as Dr. Foley here knows well about round goby. Um, And there are other fish that spend a lot of time on the bottom. But what I focus on are the benthic invertebrates that live in the bottom sediments. How, How do you study them exactly? What type of data do you collect or what type of equipment do you use or things like that? We love equipment questions. Yeah. Okay. Well, then what we use is a ponar grab. That's the standard equipment we use. And imagine it's a steel claw that you deploy down to the bottom and it grabs up a clump of sediment. You haul it up back on the boat and then we preserve those sediments on the boat and then look at them in excruciating detail back in the lab. And that's where you, you sift through them, you're looking under a scope, you're picking out every organism you can find. And then that that's the primary way that we study benthos. But there are some new technological advances as well. Oh, I want to hear about those. But first, let me get an idea of what this stuff is like. So you pull up, is it like a big slop of mud? Is it kind of like wet and stinky? Or what's it like in the, I love lab smells. I'm a lab smell kind of guy. Yeah. Let's see, not, rare, not usually not so stinky. It depends. So if you're more, and I'll, I'll be Lake Michigan centric here. If you're starting in the shallows, you're probably going to pull up a lot of sand. And that's going to be more uh, it's kind of sandy sediment. As you get deeper, you're going to have um, this fine layer of dark silt on the top. So you lift that when that comes up. So you really, really smooth, kind of creamy sediment as you get deeper. So the substrate changes depending on the depth. And so then mm-hmm. I'm just... Tell me if I'm wrong here, because I might be. I'm I'm never afraid to be wrong. Well, anyway, um, <laughs> so so the different lakes then, because they have different depths and different I don't know shapes. What is it? Bathymetry? I don't know what the right word is. Like so, they'll have you can sort of tell by uh, what 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 the substrate is. What lake you're in? Is that true? Could you? So if I here we go. If I took you and blindfolded you and dropped you <laughs> on the bottom of a lake and you could grab like a fistful of benthic organisms and substrate, would you be able to tell what lake you're in? No, but I I'd be more likely to be able to tell you what what depth okay. I am, but it would be difficult to distinguish from one lake to another. Um, there may be, there's certain areas of the lakes because of circulation patterns, you might have deposition zones and that'll influence what the sediment's like on the bottom, but it, it's more depth specific than lake specific from my, if you're blindfolded and, and just feeling it with your hands. Yeah, no, no. If you've been kidnapped and brought to the benthos for whatever reason. Okay. If you could touch it and just know what species of, of organisms you're finding, that could maybe indicate what area you're, you're in, but you're only giving me the power of touch, so. Yeah, that's that's rough. Yeah. And it, your fingers are probably wet since you're at yeah. the bottom. And I mean, very little time because you're drowning. You know what? Let's just not do this activity. Right. But I'm, I am pretty impressed that you're like... Yeah, but if you gave me some of the organisms, I could probably yeah. tell you where we were. That's yeah. <laughs> you could make MacGyver your way into the. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How how long have these um, surveys? So do they happen on all? You said Lake Michigan centric there for a second, but do these happen on all five of the Great Lakes? And do any happen in Lake Saint Clair or anything too? So I'll focus on the the Great Lakes. There, there are um, systematic 
and it's every five years on a five-year cycle with what's called the um, Cooperative Science and Monitoring Initiative that the, the lakes are visited and there are whole lake benthic surveys every five years with that cycle. And so that, and that cycle has been in more, um, more recent years, actually, you could probably tell me exactly what year they started up. It kind of, you know, it's a slow start to that, that program or um, not a slow start, but you know, the, uh, the lake. So it's, it's now a, a regular cycle now that it's up and running. Predating that initiative, we do have a good amount of historic benthic data. And so I, I looked back and we have, um, I think the Lake Erie has some of the oldest because whole lake or, or large scale benthic surveys going back to the 20s. Um, in 1930s, I believe, that's where Lake Michigan had some surveys where they started benthic surveys. And then Lake Ontario is in the 60s to start more widespread surveys of the benthos that aren't just, you know, not just focused on one small area here or there. That's crazy. The 20s, people were going. <laughs> and you know that they were wearing suits when they collected those samples. They were probably the classic. <laughs> They're out on the, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the steam powered, whatever, wearing a suit. Mm-hmm. Oh, geez. So are all those old data. So that's actually another theme we come across a lot is, is the, the power of old data sets, right? Was that stuff um, government collected typically like a hundred years ago or was it, oh, wait, no, or was that the time where you get these rogue dudes, right? Like uh, this <laughs> one guy out who's obsessed with, you know, whatever, and he's out there sampling a benthos in every lake in the world or whatever. Was it that kind of stuff or was it, was it government stuff or do you have no idea? It was quite piecemeal. I think some of them were ap- academic groups leading it. And I would, I know that because you didn't have the established government agencies doing widespread studies. Oh, yeah. This is pre. The same. You have this pre NOAA. So that's interesting. Are these cool surveys that need to do this stuff or whatever? So, so we've got just decades of data for some of these lakes, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's powerful. A lot of it government collected, some collected by the, the rogue ichthyologists or, or um, what are the ones who study in text called? Entomologists. <laughs> I was getting there. The less important ones, right? The rogue entomologists. Hey! And, um, You're outnumbered today. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, anyway, uh, so what can we learn from this? We have, in fact, I, I you know, so we have like, one could say we have six decades of Lake Ontario history mm-hmm. worth of it, I think. Um, what, what, what does this data tell us? You can, going back to the, you know, the, the species that are present, you can look at the community composition of the species that are there, and that can indicate, tell you something about the ecosystem. Um, aquatic worms, or we call oligochaetes, they're, they're in, in particular used to indicate uh, levels of nutrient enrichment or even pollution in an area, because you have some species that are more tolerant than others of pollution or of high um, productivity or eutrophic conditions. So I have an extra question to add in here is like, how do you determine the species of a worm? With a microscope. It's <laughs> yeah. Well, it is coming. You're looking at um, bristle patterns. You're looking at the shape of bristles, the way it's hooked. It is, it's fascinating. And, and then also addressing like um, uh, aquatic insect larvae, you have um, the coronamids that you're mounting the head capsule and you're looking at you exact shapes of mouth parts. It's, it's fascinating, but it's very exacting work that requires a mounted specimen. You're looking under the microscope. Oh my goodness. The most part. Cutting off heads and yep. like putting the, yeah. Mm-hmm. You've cut off some worm heads, I bet. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so, so, all right, let's, let me reorient around that. Cause I have a, okay. So, so, so you get all the, the gunk that may or may not be sticky, stinky, may or may not be sandy or mucky in the lab. And you're having to look at all of these individual organisms, right? In this case, uh, I mean, you aren't looking at 60 years, but people have been doing this for 60, 70, 80 years. And so you're comparing those and you know, the different organisms thrive under different kind of conditions. Is that what you're saying? Right. And from that, you mm-hmm. infer what the conditions, what the conditions are. Huh. That's right. And it, and you can see there, there are periods of um, both Lake Michigan and Lake Ontario. We can speak to these because of these long-term benthic records. They both went through periods of eutrophication where there was increasing productivity, more nutrient input into the lake. And then areas after phosphorus abatement programs where we were being more careful about what we're dumping into the lakes. And with that declining phosphorus input, uh, you, you then that, that's a different stage for what the, you know, the benthos, that's a, that marks a major change in reducing that stressor to the benthos. And then, um, and I'm sure we'll be getting to talk to um, in a bit about then when species enter the system that weren't there before. And in that way, you can see the, the major changes that occur when you have a new addition into an ecosystem. Huh. Yeah, I've got a pro level segue coming up for that, but, yeah. but but before we get there, and so then so then when you see those changes, that coincides then it ripples up or it ripples throughout the food web in the ecosystem, right? And mm-hmm. you can infer that, huh? Yeah. And so with the reduction in nutrients, you find that I assume the water is getting a little bit clearer over time, especially in Lake Michigan. But then another thing that's making the water clearer is um, the introduction of <laughs> mussels. Isn't that right? That's correct. Yes, and the. In the 1980s, uh, the zebra and then quagga mussels were discovered in the Great Lakes, and we find them in, well, they're, they're in all five of the Great Lakes, and they are present in, in high numbers in all lakes except for Lake Superior. So I'll, I'll start with Lake Superior first, because that is the exception here. Mussels have been present there for decades. Uh, however, their populations are, are very low density. They're sparsely distributed, and even though they've been present for decades, they haven't. Their populations haven't exploded and followed the same paths that we've seen the mussels do in all the, the lower lakes. Is that because Lake Superior is just not a nice place to live for a mussel? Well, I was going to say it's too cool for mussels. I I must say, cool? I love I love Lake Superior, but it... Lake Superior loves itself though. So let's not actually say that out loud. <laughs> But with the the mussels can handle cold, especially quagga mussels. So zebra and quagga mussels, they are, you know, there are two mussels in the same genus, the Dracaena genus. That's why we call them Dracaenid mussels. And they're very similar in a lot of ways, but they have a lot of differences. One being that quagga mussels can handle cold, deep environments. Um, but what a limiter for both species of mussels is in Lake Superior is the low calcium levels. Calcium. And that interferes with their, you know, their recruitment of how, you know, able to uh, spread and establish populations in new areas. And that has to do with like them incorporating it into their shell? Is mm-hmm. that? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Thank, thanks for making that connection. That has to do with their, yeah, their build, their, um, they're not able to build shell material. They just, they, they can't make it. And so in these low calcium environments, you, the, the muscles, some will survive. We, we still find some that can make it, but there's much higher attrition throughout their life cycle in low calcium. 
So, and this is probably way outside your purview. So feel free to tell me, I don't know, but, but so, you know, one of the concerns is like muscles just getting everywhere, even outside of the lakes. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, I I might be thinking more of carp and things like that, but um, spreading into various rivers to to rivers can calcium be a limiting factor within rivers and stuff too. And maybe that would prevent muscle spread or the muscles just everywhere. I don't even really know. Well, you, you're, you're thinking along the right lines and that, um, you know, calcium is important and there is a threshold level where you, you need to have a, cal- a threshold level of calcium to have muscles established. Uh, you know, we, we have muscles throughout the Great Lakes region. They're throughout North America. You know, they're, they're in Lake Winnipeg. They're over you know, throughout Ontario and they're over now in the West. There is a time when they're trying to prevent the, the muscles from getting beyond the 100th meridian, but muscles have made it out West. You know, one one vector being on recreational boats from the Great Lakes traveling, you know, to Lake Mead. And now we have quagga mussels in Lake Mead. Uh, but part of what scientists out west are doing is they're looking at uh, doing kind of um, a risk assessment of which water bodies are likely to be able to house mussels. And calcium is a big part of that. And that could say, well, this lake, th- this watershed is low calcium and therefore at lower risk of introduction, let's focus our efforts on lakes that would be more likely to support the mussels. I believe work in Wisconsin did, did looked at this as well. And so they can sort of um, make those determinations based on data and information gathered through studying the Great Lakes populations that mm-hmm. are... Okay. Yeah, Great Lakes, and then a lot of the inland lakes, because, you know, mussels, particularly zebra mussels, are found uh, very widespread throughout inland lakes and rivers in throughout our entire region and the great lakes were the beachhead for that invasion and they spread out from there. But so you can um, think about the differences in the lakes and things like that. You actually have hot off the presses, right? An article out in the um, journal of great lakes research, or as Carolyn right. calls it jiggler. Um, mm-hmm. And, and so you have this new, yeah. it was in the know. <laughs> I, didn't, yeah. I didn't know about jiggler until recently <laughs> back at the same postdoc got a paper and press it jiggler. And, and so now it's my new favorite Journal, journal, or jiggle, just reminds anyway. you of Jello a little bit. Jello right? jigglers, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you laugh every time I say it. <laughs> <laughs> Me and my buddy John Downing with the Jello shots, and um, so anyway. But so you analyzed, uh, you analyzed um, uh, depths and and muscle distributions and things like that. What can you tell us about that that paper? Yeah, so the uh, study that we recently published in, in Jiggler was that sounds. <laughs> Very it's a different legitimate. show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, what, what we published, what we, we did a field-based growth experiment for quagga mussels in Lake Ontario. And we collaborated with U.S. Geological Survey. They have a field station there in Oswego, New York. And we put out ca- moorings that con- can- contained caged mussels at 15 meters, 45 meters, and 90 meters depth just catching from a near shore to, to deeper offshore transect in that area. And what we found is that uh, mussels in the near shore, where they have higher temperature, higher, cal- um, we, we measured their food but using um, measuring their chlorophyll levels, that they had higher growth. And in fact, their, their growth was 10 times higher in, at 15 meters than what we found at 90 meters. So it's just, it, it's wild when we opened up the cages and we saw how much they grew. Like, well, wait, 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 where did this muscle come from? We put in a little <laughs> 10 millimeter muscle and now you're 20 millimeters. It was beyond our expectation of how much they would grow in a year. And we just saw that in the shallows. When you go further offshore, 
is intermediate growth at the 45 meters and like I mentioned, very low growth at 90 meters. And this connects to um, other work that I did with collaborators. This is a study led by um, Drs. Karatayev and Berlikova. They're with the um, Buffalo State College. They were leading the whole lake surveys of mussels. And this feeds into a long-term record of mussels that we have um, for benthic surveys in Lake Ontario. And what we have is at each depth, you see a little different population trajectory at each of the depths. And in the near shore, the populations were kind of came on fast. They were high. And then they we've since seen reductions. Now, they're still quite high and they're still high enough to be causing impacts. But the muscle populations aren't as as um, it's, it's not as dense populations as it used to be when they peaked. Why is that? Do you know? Uh, well, you know? it's I think it's overshooting. You see this boom and bust oh, dynamic yeah, yeah, yeah. where they could okay. have over, overshot what the um, what the ecosystem is able to support, and now they're more at a level of okay, this is the food that's available. This is what um, this is where they're at. So it's a carrying capacity issue potentially, or something like that. Yes, yeah, it indicates that. And then as you go deeper, the population has just been on this so slow and steady increase over time in numbers, though not in size. In numbers. And biomass. So it's it's both that the, the muscles are present, but then the muscles that are there are getting bigger, but they're taking an extremely long time to, to get bigger. And that is congruent with what we found with the growth rates. It's slow, steady growth on an individual level that promotes the slow and steady growth at the population level that is, um, there's no boom and bust there. It's just been like a slow, steady crawl. Tortoise and hare, like literally, that's sorry. Huh. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, to cycle back a little bit and bring the dry synods into what we were talking about at the beginning, what does, like if we were to go out into the deep parts of Lake Michigan, mm-hmm. and what would it look like on the bottom? Would it be just tons of mussels? Would there be like old shells from old organisms? Mm-hmm. Who else is still living down there? What type of stuff is going on? Well, it's take on a journey here. So let's let me think if we, if we start more shallow, you know, it's, it's sandy, you don't have as much muscles, it's a high energy environment, you have shifting sediments, but what you, we will find in the more shallows is you can get really high uh, densities of muscles, but it'll be patchy. And that you might, I've dropped an area, an area we've dropped down three ponars and two of them will have almost no muscles. And then the third ponar will have a thousand muscles in it. And it just shows how patchy it is in that area, but it's high energy, shifting sediments, but very warm, higher food. The muscles that can be there, they'll, they'll grow and they'll do great. There's a lot of turnover because of the energy. So then you go further offshore and this is where you get the depths where muscles are um, it's a little more stable environment. The temperature is more stable through the year. The food levels are going to be intermediate. And you get, you still, it's it's patchy, but on a very small scale. So this is where, because of, and I, I'd love to talk about this more later, the, the new methods we're using to, to actually see the muscles in the bottom and introduce video, is you can see that it's essentially at this depth, a solid carpet with, with some kind of little gaps in there, but very solid carpet. And this is where you have extremely high densities of muscles. Just a, a solid carpet of muscles? Yes. It's a little it's a little horrifying. There are videos where you, we put a, a draw um a GoPro. A GoPro camera? Yeah, on the on the ponar. 
So you get a Ponar's eye view of, of the drop going down and you collect the sediment. And as it's zooming up, you just see the carpet and as it zooms out and out and out until you can no longer see the bottom anymore, it just, it expands in a way that you can't believe how solid that carpet is. So one thing we talk about a lot on this show is is the importance of long data sets, right? And continuing to fund scientists, be they government scientists or academic scientists or, you know, through CSMI or whatever, to keep collecting these valuable data over time. But another theme that we have is like new technology. And so you mentioned one with the GoPro. That wasn't possible, I don't know, 10 years ago, right? Um, or, well, I, I don't know GoPro history. Um, but but let's, let's say 10, 15 years ago, that wasn't really possible. Yeah, we weren't doing yeah. that yet, yeah. And so what, uh, what other new technologies are you using to kind of investigate, you know, uh, muscles and the benthos, I suppose? Mm-hmm. Well, in, it's in more recent years, we've been incorporating video data to augment the, what we get by ponar grabs. Because I think a, a ponar grab goes down and it, it covers a relative pinprick of an area. It's like a blind pinprick of a sample you're getting from the bottom. And, you know, sometimes, like I said, we get... We always do replicate grabs at an area to, to get an idea. That would give us a little better idea. If all three grabs are the same, it's a pretty consistent environment. If it's if it's a thousand muscles, zero and zero, then you know it's patchy. But now with the addition of adding video, we get immediate confirmation that that's the case and getting to see a much bigger area than what a, a ponar can tell us. And so I'll uh, give credit here to um, colleagues from Buffalo State College and also EPA who've been developing a lot of this this video approach uh, using different methods to to get eyes on on the bottom of the lakes and um, uh, one of the goals there is to actually get overhead video on an area and then immediately be processing that and getting an idea of muscle coverage a percent muscle coverage and trying to translate that into density and biomass of muscles and then you you'd have that data of much sooner after the survey. Otherwise, it can take us a year to process the samples because I mentioned before that's painstaking. Pick, 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 pick. Look, 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 look. And then, you know, measure, measure, measure. So it re- replaces that or uh, it, it supplements it. It's not it's no replacement for that work, but it it augments the physical samples. And so is there something you've learned? So so new technology enables new um, mm-hmm. analyses, right? Is there something that we've learned as a result of this that either we uh, didn't know before or we were wrong about before maybe? Or, you know, what has this enabled for us? Or is it just mainly getting to, you know, truth these samples and, and augment them a lot, which is in and of itself really a powerful thing, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I think it, it just gives us more coverage in areas. Um, and it's something that's very important about incorporating these um, non-ponar technologies is that it allows better sampling of the muscles in the near shore. A ponar grab is built for soft sediments. It's not going to work if it's a rocky base. It's not going to get a good grab. If there even if it's a gravelly area, any stones in there can keep the claw from getting a good close on the way up and you'll lose all your sample. So it's really it allows the better characterization in the near shore zone. Is also a group from U.S. Geological Survey, and they're developing multi-beam sonar as a way to scan the bottom, and they're adding to this video collections on underwater vehicles, and that would be another way to to advance the technology on assessing populations. And I'm collaborating with them on a study based in Lake Michigan, and we're to help ground truth their findings with physical samples. 
Nice. Are you going to get to go in one of the vehicles? These are remote operated vehicles uh, or well, or autonomous underwater vehicles. Oh, thank yeah, goodness. So, yeah. That sounds a little much for me. I wouldn't want to do it, but I, I want someone else to do it and tell me about it. Yeah. <laughs> and there are some, some of these videos are available like on YouTube and stuff, right? You can. Yeah. Um, one a video that I often use in presentations, it's EPA has a video posted that shows a ponar grab going down and then you can get that sense of the zooming out and the carpet of muscles. Oh, super. Well, we will put a link to that in our show notes, which you can find at teachmeaboutthegreatlakes.com slash 56. That's the number five, six. Because Carolyn, this is episode 56, believe it or not. That's uh, what? Pat Swilling. Pat Swilling. Great linebacker for the Saints, number 56. Um, okay. Yeah. I believe you. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, all right. One other thing I want to talk about with regards to, to muscles. So something we notice is we put out these buoys every year, right? Um, one mm-hmm. of the best things we do is put out the buoys. When we get them back, they're often just covered in these things, right? They're covered. In th- so they're out for what? As long as it's warm, which in this area of the country is, I don't know, a month and a half or two months. <laughs> From approximately April to approximately November. There we go. But yes. <laughs> The buoys are out when it's not warm, too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and they they're very often have a lot of muscles. Carolyn, I, I've never actually recovered the buoys because, um, you know, you don't want me near field work. It's just a bad idea. But uh, so, like, what kind of muscle? Are they big or what, what size are they when we pull the buoys in? So um, much like Ashley was mentioning or Dr. Elgin um, <laughs> was mentioning um, – they grow pretty quickly because, I mean, when we put them in, it's completely clean, right? And they are, you know, big enough that you can actually pull them off, um, but not so big that their threads are super strong. But yeah, I mean, I would say like some of them can get up to maybe a quarter of an inch, a half of an inch. And you think about that in a single year, um, that's pretty insane. A single year where it didn't even go in for the whole year. Well, so the buoys are higher up. So, all right, I'm going to ask you to speculate. If if the buoys sunk instead of floated, please don't buoys, um, would, would they be smaller, right? Because it would be at a greater depth. So would you theorize that maybe the muscles would be smaller or no? I think that would be really cool because we have like chains and stuff. We could, oh, we could put the yeah, depth chains. make that happen. So that people have done studies. And right now there's a group um, in a group in Switzerland and they're measuring in Lake Geneva, which is, was very um, relatively recently in the last five or so years invaded by quagga mussels. Um, They are looking at growth at different depths in the water column. And basically this study and other studies have shown if you're higher up in the water column, there's more growth than if you're at the bottom. So buoy, being on a buoy and then being right up at the top near the water surface, that's the prime spot where mussels would want to be. It's also a work in Lake Mead. I'd mentioned that earlier with quagga mussels that they can have shown different depths in the water and what their growth is. But so then my actual question is this. These buoys are only out, like Carolyn said, for a mere six-ish months. And they get covered in these stinking mussels. And and so so is that because I can think of two potential reasons. One, the water column is so stuffed full of mussels that uh, they just have to latch on to the buoys. Or two, they have like some sort of buoy or structure seeking, you know, system, right, within them. Do you know which it is? Like, like are they good at – but then they would have to be able to swim. And I assume they just sort of get washed around by the currents. And so do they seek out the buoys or is it just more the case that there are so many mussels that the buoys are going to get them? And like if I stayed in Lake Michigan for six or eight months, um, I would get 
and immobile, um, uh, which given my body composition is unlikely, um, uh, would, would they all just stick to me? Like, uh, what's the deal there, I guess? A few thoughts come to mind here. One, muscles are opportunistic. And then two, at certain times of the year, and it's raining muscles. So the, the muscles have a planktonic stage called a veliger. And this is one of the reasons that they are so effective and they just spread so quickly is they have, they have external reproduction. So eggs and sperms are released separately. They meet in the water, will develop into a veliger. That veliger then will spend, can spend a good time of, wa- of time in the water column. And they have some control over where they are because the, the veligers, we find them more in the epilimnion in the upper levels, upper, upper warmer weather. Um, warmer waters. And so if they weren't able to control where they are, they would, you know, they, they wouldn't be able to orient and stay up in the epilimnion. And then they, they're feeding as zooplankton, essentially, in, in the water column, and as a member of the zooplankton community. And then when they get large enough, then it's, you know, it's, it's time to start settling out. And if a villager's of the right size, and it atta- finds a hard substrate, that's where muscles want to be. If it encounters that hard substrate, it's going to start attach, and that's what creates abyssal threads, those little gluey threads that they'll attach to things. And that makes partially what makes muscles such a bugaboo is they're so good at attaching to things. They foul ships, they shed, they foul water intakes. They're a problem for hydroelectric dams and um, water treatment plants, and you name it. They because they can attach so well. But then muscles sometimes they 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 don't find something to attach to. And then they will fall down to the bottom because they no longer can, they're big enough now and it's, it's time for them to go to the bottom and they, they can't be swimming around anymore. And because they, they are capable of moving themselves around in the water column. And they sit down to the bottom and then they will, the ones that make it to the bottom, if there's no hard substrate, they will either be uh, attached to other muscles. They will sink into the soft substrates. And quagga muscles in particular, you know, as opposed to zebra muscles, are able to establish and persist quite well in soft sediments. That's why when you when I was you know taking this journey to envision what they're like at each of the depths, when you get deeper and deeper, they're still present. It's just more um, kind of like a a sparse. They're spread out and they're kind of sparse, but very consistent, but more sparse. So that's, um, and that's just the, the villagers that, that made it out to that depth and settled out and the ones that survived under those conditions. So if they didn't attach to our buoys, then they might not survive. Most villagers that, that are produced don't survive anyway. It's one of those parts in the life history that there's just extremely high attrition. It's like how many, how many of these dandelion seeds will become a dandelion? Or how many of these, these yard, maple seeds? Most. Well, yeah, it, all of them. Yes. Um, <laughs> as soon as I was saying that, I'm like, I need a better plant. Uh, um, <clears throat> you know, the number of um, you know maple seeds that become a full blown tree, for example. And so most villagers are going to perish, but the ones that um, I'm guessing would stick to a hard surface will probably uh, have better success than the ones that make it down to the bottom and find that environment, which is more challenging. So really, though, in more than one ways, our buoys are real lifesavers. <laughs> so I guess to wrap up this this part, uh, and oh my gosh, I could just listen to you talk about this all day. You're so knowledgeable and so on top of your stuff. This is really fun. I don't, you know, just to get to nerd out on, on Benthos is, 
in a safe space is really nice. I did not know the extent to which I enjoyed nerding out on Benthos. <laughs> Turns out I do. But um, so I, I think I know the answer to this this question. But but you know, so these muscles are everywhere, and like they are. Um, kind of bad, right? You're talking about all the things that foul up and they've really forever changed the water quality in Lake Michigan, for example. Like it's so much more clear now. In fact, some key stakeholders within Illinois, Indiana Sea Grant um, say that the water in Lake Michigan is even too clear now. Without commenting on Thomas's comment, uh, it's just, uh, it's, it's really changed. And so is there anything we can do about these muscle populations or are they just, uh, are they just there in these, as, as uh, our friend Titus Seilheimer says, and this is now the lake we have. Um, you know, where, or is there something to do? Yeah. Well, certainly there's, there's the Great Lakes before mussels and the Great Lakes after mussels. And, you know, a lot of processes like physical, chemical, biological processes have been altered by the mussels being there. Um, a lot of the, there've been, uh, um, adjustments and adaptations in the ecosystem of, with the mussels to be there. So, but thinking about removing them. So one, it, it's, it's a still logistically an extremely challenging thing to do based on where they're found. Um, the pure mass of muscles individually, they're very small, but it's uh, just add that up. And it's a huge amount of a biomass of muscles that's there. Um, but a group of us formed in 2014, a group, a group called the invasive muscle collaborative. And the whole point of the collaborative is to advance the, the technology and the science of muscle control. And it's still logistically out of reach to be doing widespread removal of muscles. However, there's there are um, different toxicants, there are different methods that are being tested in inland lakes and in shallow areas of the Great Lakes that are showing promise. Um, and I think that uh, where we're moving now, the, the target right now is to do you know, focused removal efforts in regions, in small areas or regions that are of high habitat value. So it, and we're not there yet, but that's what we're working towards. So for example, that would mean doing um, a targeted removal of mussels in an area that is um, high quality for fish spawning habitat. And we want to preserve and protect some fish. There we go. <laughs> um, we want to protect that uh, habitat. So then could we uh, do a, a regional removal effort that could improve situations in that one area? And that that's where the collaborative is moving at this point. Another great thing about the collaborative is, and it's something I personally get a, a lot from, from it, is it just brings together all the people who want to nerd out about muscles. So <laughs> you just get that, that community together and help understand where's the state of the science, not just with control efforts, but studying the population, studying their impacts, and help to better anticipate where are their what are their populations going to look like in 10 years, based on everything that we've been learning so far? How is the ecosystem? Is it in a new state with the muscles present? So that those are all the things that we, we like to talk about when we gather. So, I mean, keep dreaming. Don't give up hope, right? Don't give up hope. That's right. Yep. You mentioned like the targeted removals. They tried to do that at Sleeping Bear Dunes. Is that right? Yeah, so that that's part of the the testing for this. You know, this okay. is something you have to start in in a, in a um, small test plots, and in that one, it was putting down benthic barriers and putting Zequinox, which is a highly specific toxicant uh, for that targets dreissenid mussels, and in putting that under the benthic barrier and, and killing the mussels that way. They're also 
testing now, just putting down benthic barriers, which the oxygen drops underneath and you can um, suffocate the muscles. So that, that's one approach being being considered right now. Well, Ashley, this is really fascinating to nerd out about muscles like this. <laughs> it's an enjoyable conversation. We could go on for a long time. Um, but actually, that's not why we invited you here on Teach Me About the Great Lakes <laughs> this week. The reason that we invited you on Teach Me About the Great Lakes is to ask two questions. And the first one is this. If you could choose to have a great donut for breakfast or a great sandwich for lunch, which would you choose? Great sandwich, please. Great sandwich, please. All right. And so if I'm going to come to Muskegon and we're going to, we're going to, you know, I'm going to blindfold you, drop you in the middle of the table. All right. But, but before I do that, we're going to go to lunch. Um, and uh, so, so if I'm going to go to lunch and get a great sandwich in Muskegon, Carolyn will buy. Um, what, uh, what, uh, where should I go to get this sandwich? Oh, there are two, two places. Fatty Lumpkins is, is known for good sandwiches. And then if you want a burger, Hamburger Mikey's. Hamburger Mikey's. Hamburger Mikey's. Yeah, those two places in Muskegon. If you if you're going for um, food between bread. Yeah, food. <laughs> <laughs> Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you? <laughs> That's great. And the next question is this: What is a you know we we're trying to cr- help create a community around the Great Lakes, help people really appreciate like what a wonderful resource these five uh, Grand Locks, as Carolyn calls it, uh, are. Uh, is there like a special place in the Great Lakes that you could share with our audience? And, and if so, what makes it so special? For me, that would be, that's the Keweenaw Peninsula, jutting out into Lake Superior. Um, I love it because it has, well, for two reasons. One, I grew up there, so I'm very partial. <laughs> but I I have some wonderful memories of the, uh, different places in the Keweenaw Peninsula. But, you know, it has, it has white sand beaches. It has sandstone cliffs. It has craggy, rocky shores. And so just in, in that small area, you get many different flavors of what Great Lakes shorelines I like. So I, and it's just uh, enchanting. So that's what I recommend. There we go. And that's up on the UP, right? So I encourage people. That's right, eh? Oh, it's so beautiful. <laughs> oh, I got that. You get your past. You... <laughs> <laughs> the UP truly is magical, though. Yeah. No, it, it really I is. I appreciate hearing that. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, Dr. Ashley Elgin, research economist. Co- mm. Elgin. 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 Well, I screwed up the whole thing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Quinn, that can stay in. That's on me. Uh, the, uh, Ashley Elgin, Dr. Ashley Elgin, mm-hmm. who's a research ecologist at the NOAA Great Lakes <laughs> Environmental Research Lab in Muskegon, Michigan, home of Food Between Bread. Thank you so much for coming on and teaching us all about the Great Lakes. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks. Wow, that, I mean, I'm hate, well, I, I, we shouldn't start designating this right after because then there'll be an implication. So I normally don't do this, but that might be an instant Hall of Fame right there. Yeah, no, um, she's super knowledgeable and just so approachable and just has, yeah, I mean, I really enjoyed the, uh, if you were uh, blindfolded, would you be able to tell where you were? Yeah, <laughs> sounds like she she has a better shot than than I do anyway. Yep, no, it's it's really good, and uh, yeah, it, I guess the good guess are the one where it's like I didn't know that I wanted to nerd out about muscles, but it turns out and benthos in general, yeah, and I guess um, you know one of the things like the 
you know, at one point we were reading the death and life of the Great Lakes, but the discussion of, you know, moving stuff out to Lake Mead, do you mm. even want to answer that? Never, never heard of it. Never, death and life of what? <laughs> Right. But yeah, anyway, it's, it's, it's really cool. Um, so yeah. And I mean, there's such a, a, um, a key component of Great Lakes food webs now. Um, like the benthos was, is, has always been important. We didn't even talk about Dipariya. We can bring her back on to talk about Dipariya in the future. That was like a, a benthic organism that was formerly really important and has disappeared and stuff like that. Oh, so it'd be interesting to see how that goes through the the 60 years or 100 years of samples then potentially. Right, right. Exactly, exactly. And knowing different stuff like that. And um, just thinking about all the, the data sets and stuff is, is really cool. So. Yep. Yeah. And again, Hello again, Stuart. Oh, I'm sorry, Caroline. I missed that. Well, anyway, what I was saying was, um, yeah, again, like it's important to fund the scientists and... and uh, what the heck is that? <laughs> Uh, did you hear something? I don't know. I, I don't know. Maybe it's, you know, these, I'm not really good at like my software. So I, I sounds like a robot type of voice or whatever though. I'm not, you know. Let's see. No, I think we're good. Are we still recording? Stuart, we are back. Wait a minute. Will Matt, is that you? Yes. Carolyn, it's the buoys. Oh. The- Will Matt in Michigan City buoy. How are, how are you guys or girls or, or sentient non-gendered beings how are you how are you doing we have no gender steward but we are doing well <laughs> well that's wonderful we haven't spoken with you in a couple of years how has how has it been so it's been a tough year for people right and when we last spoke actually it was just during the beginning of, of covid and you missed people out on the lakes i remember now how has the last year in change been are you lonely still or, or what's the deal no we're great now yeah, that's great that you're doing well. Um, I guess you weathered everything okay and things are, are coming around. We are actually about to go back into the lake. Is it that time of the year already? Yes. And we have some exciting new. Oh, I better know what it is, actually. So, listeners, as you may remember, Carolyn, you probably remember this. Michigan City yeah. got struck last year by a boat. And um, our good friends at Limnotech worked with us to... Uh, uh, fix up Michigan City, and I think actually got like maybe a, a couple of sensor upgrades. Is that right? I imagine that is the exciting news, and that's that's really great. Yeah, and a lot of our, our stakeholders will be really excited about that too. Yep, all the new stuff, all the new data we can get. Yeah, I am in much better shape this year. Thank you for asking. But we have even more exciting news. Okay, well, I'll tell you what. Here's how we're going to do this, and this never goes wrong. So don't worry. This always goes right. So we are going to, here's what I'll do. You can announce your big news, but uh, uh, buoys, I am going to do a drum roll and then you announce your big news. And then we've, I, I don't have a bump on, but I've got the closest thing to a bump on, which we, uh, 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 I recently created. So, all right, great. So we are going to do uh, the drum roll and then the big news. Here comes the drum roll. It's a new buoy. A new buoy? Whoa! Hold on! What? What? A new buoy? Tell me what is? Tell me about this buoy. What is the deal here? Hello, I am the Chicago Pier buoy. Chicago Pier buoy. That's really cool because you know for several years we've been hoping to to get some stuff right off of Chicago. So so where do you actually hang out, Chicago buoy? Chicago Pier buoy. Which buoy are you off? Navy Pier, the big one. A big one. All right. Whoa. <laughs> That's amazing. So can you see, when you go out, will you be able to see like Navy Pier in Chicago? Or are you going to be that close or, or farther out? Yes, I will be right there. Please don't run me over. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking at you now. You're kind of a short one, Chicago Bowie. Is that because you're younger or you're just a different model of Bowie? 
different model, improved tech, all the good stuff. <laughs> That's fantastic. And I've heard, so you're the Chicago Bowie. A lot of people I've heard increasingly are referring to you as uh, Chewy. Is that right? Is that kind of your nickname among Cognoscenti? I would love to be called Chewy. <laughs> well, then it's official. <laughs> it is official. Chewy it is. Let's go back for a woo. <laughs> that's great well one thing you could do if you're worried about your height in all honesty i was thinking about this we were actually just speaking with the brilliant dr ashley elgin about muscles and dry sentence and stuff so to increase your height maybe you could let a bunch of muscles attach to you and then that would sort of extend you up uh, into the air a little bit have you considered that no thank you the other boys have told me how much they like dr elgin and i would rather not be covered in muscles <laughs> well that's that's fair that's fair. So um, Michigan City and, and Wilmette, are, are you headed back out sometime soon? Yes. Within the next few weeks, we will be back in our summer home. So perhaps by the, by the time we are at our um, meetup in Grand Rapids, we will be able to be looking at buoy data. That would be really cool. We hope so. Nice to see you again, Stuart. Nice to see you too. Hey, and I'm really excited to, uh, to talk with you all again and to, I can't wait to see you out on the lake um, or at least see the data that you collect and the images and videos you send back while you're out on the lake. And images, because I do think that one of the upgrades that they've all gotten now is they all have images now. So that's yes. something that is really always nice to look at. So, and also that was really weird to be interrupted by robotic Louise. Yeah, you know, it, it happens uh, to me every now and again. Um, but for me, it's it's more like weird to be interrupted by celebrities, regardless robot buoys or otherwise. <laughs> well, let's uh, do the thing then. Teach Me About the Great Lakes is brought to you by the fine people at Illinois Indiana Sea Grant. We encourage you to check out the great work we do at IISEAGrant.org and at ILINC Grant on Facebook, Twitter, and other social media. Teach Me About the Great Lakes is produced by Hope Charters, Carolyn Foley, Megan Gunn, and Rennie Miles. Ethan Chitty is our associate producer and fixer. Our super fun podcast artwork is by Joel Davenport. The show is edited by the awesome Quinn Rose and I encourage you to check her work out at aspiringrobot.com. If you have a question or comment about the show, please email it to teachmeaboutthegreatlakes at gmail.com or leave a message on our hotline at 765-496-IISG. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Teach Great Lakes. Thanks for listening and keep reading those lakes. I'm just hearing the sweet rap. Yeah, it goes, for a second, it goes for a second uh, second verse because I was just really into it that day, but we'll, we'll fade it out there. No, that, mm -hmm. um, that's, a, that's a crawdad hole is the name of that song. It's an old like mm. classic in the South. Um, I studied so. crawdads for my master's research. So I, have, I have a... Place in my house for, for crawdads as well. Yeah, as do I. I have a place in my stomach that I think is largely <laughs> because of crawdads. <laughs> <laughs>